looking back at 40 years of alternative music. It's the Roots of Alternative with Dixon and Jack on 95X. Well, welcome back to the Roots of Alternative podcast, our weekly look back here on the past 40 years of alternative music. Now, we're finding out what songs define the year, the decade, and the legacy of alternative music. And we have gone so far through the 1980s. We are almost to the end. But before we get to the end, we're going to take a look today at the year 1988. My name is Jack, joined by Dixon. We're your guides through this musical journey. And hello, my friend. How are you doing? Fantastic yourself. Well, you know what? I, I, I'm pretty good because I'm, I'm on a high right now because we just got back from doing our bonus episode on the Joshua Tree, which... I think I've listened to that album since we recorded that podcast. I think I've listened to it about 10 times. <laughs> I kind of figured. I, I knew it was going to be kind of apropos for you doing that right before a vacation. That was a camping vacation. So, mm. Yeah, the, the entire weekend I was listening to that album and just kind of rediscovering. Actually, I went back and I found the Joshua Tree Deluxe version on Apple Music. And uh, there is a whole section of live recordings from a show they did, I think it was in 1987. Uh, and the live recordings of those songs were just brilliant. I had never heard those before. So that was a lot of fun doing that episode with our guest, uh, Kevin Brown, as well. And if you haven't listened to that, you can catch that now up at 95x.com slash Roots of Alternative and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All right. So like I said, we're getting close to the end of the decade and I'm super excited to talk about 1988. But before we get into all the nitty gritty and talk about the music from 1988, we're going to do, as we always do, take a look at some historical facts from that year. What happened in history in the year 1988? And our friend Dixon has some information on that right now. This was uh, most definitely towards the end of the Cold War as Glasnost, or Glasnost, depending on how you want to pronounce it, was introduced by Soviet Union leader Mikhail Gorbachev, which allowed political expression and dissent within the Soviet Union for the first time. Uh, in addition to that, in 1988, it was the first time the term designated driver was coined, uh, a team up of the Harvard Medical School. They partnered with a film and TV studio to insert the concept of the designated driver into pop culture via commercials, uh, drink responsible campaigns, and into movies as well. Also in 1988, Wrigley Field installed lights for the first time, despite the fact that the first night game in Major League Baseball was played all the way back in 1935. And that was a big deal. I remember Wrigley Field getting lights because there was an entire part of my childhood where if you saw the Cubs at home, it was only during the day. Oh, so they never even scheduled it past sundown. Always played the home games during the day. Uh, <laughs> also, Roman Carthage signed a peace treaty to officially end the Third Punic War. Uh, the price of a postage stamp in 1988 was 25 cents, and the first affordable 10-disc changer was released by Sony, it was called the Disc Jockey, and it was priced affordably at $499.99. Holy moly. I remember when we started this podcast in 1980, I think it was either 80 or 81, when the very first CD player was released in Japan. Was that right? Yep. Yep. Wow. You Man, are correct, sir. We've come a long way. How many disc changers was that? That was a 10-disc changer. 
That was the Jeez. the big thick guy that you would like put the CDs in and then fold them in and then shove the whole thing in. I think that, I, that didn't sound right. <laughs> I think I actually did see one of those once, and I just remember when I was when I was a teenager, I got a I got, I got my own stereo system. I was probably one of the last people in the world to get like a stereo because it was right when MP3 players started coming out in the early 2000s. But my stereo, I'm using air quotes had a three-disc CD changer, and I thought that Ooh, was so cool. It was like cool. the tray kind, right? Like it would rotate? Oh, yeah, yep, and it spun around, yeah. and then uh, it actually broke and stopped working like two years ago, and then I just donated the whole thing. So somebody somewhere has my old stereo system uh, with a broken three-disc CD uh, changer. They all broke. They all <laughs> but broke. the radio still works. Yes. <laughs> well, 1988 uh, was more than just – a lot of what you just heard, it was also a huge change in music. And we're going to dip in right now to check out the music from 1988. All right. As we continue on now to check out the music from 1988, I just need to start off by saying, Dixon, I'm wicked excited for this year. And I know I say that about every year, but this year is so different on so many levels. And I don't know, maybe I'm biased to this because I'm a huge fan of you too, but we talked a lot about in our bonus episode of The Joshua Tree, just how much that album changed alternative music. And this year, 1988, to me is completely different. And in many ways, I feel like we're starting to see beginnings of music that we hear in the 90s. So as I went through and listened to this whole playlist, which by the way, you can check out all the songs that we're going to be talking about, at our show page, 95x.com slash Roots of Alternative for our show from 1988. But I just feel like we're now starting to feel more like the early 90s. And specifically, I think we're starting to hear a lot of the beginning of grunge and a lot less new wave. I think you're on the path. I mean, there are definitely some of the beginnings of what became modern rock becoming evident in alternative. I don't know that New Wave completely went away. I think it just morphed into a more contemporary version of itself. I'm just going to start off by going through some of the songs that really stood out to me that felt like the beginnings of grunge. Um, and right off the bat was actually the first song on the list from Pixies called Where Is My Mind? And that song had that very... It, to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but I felt as though it was that dark, grungy sound. And honestly, even more than Desire from U2, which was also on this, it was my favorite song from the year. There was just something about it, and it made me feel like grunge in its full was is right around the corner. There's definitely something to be said for that, and it, it, it's cool that you picked up on that. The Pixies are one of the most absolutely influential bands of almost everything that came out of uh, the entire Seattle scene, most specifically Nirvana, who cited the Pixies and their introduction of what is considered the loud soft dynamic as sort of a structure for what built Nirvana. Now, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is Where Is My Mind was, was not a hit in its time. In fact, it was just an album track that became popular in later days because it was such an amazing song live and was also featured in a prominent role in the film Fight Club, which is where a lot of its modern-day uh, hubbub lies. The single from that album was actually Bone Machine. 
Well, I mean, regardless, I thought that was still a great song. Um, but by the same token, there were still a few other songs to me that still had a connection to earlier 80s sounds. Um, one of those songs in particular was uh, um, Fine Young Cannibals, She Drives Me Crazy. Uh, I, I, that one almost felt like a hybrid to me. I feel like there's an evolution to some newer sounds in that, but I felt like it was still rooted in the earlier 80s sound. Well, you're going to find a lot, and you'll find that happening again today, is that the lines between alternative and pop music are starting to blur. Well, let, let's take, for example, in modern times, a band like AJR or an act like AJR. Uh, I hate to just you know consider them just a band because they do so much more than that. But uh, AJR, by all you know, typical definitions, are a pop act uh, akin more to the Jonas Brothers based on their theatrical presentation and songwriting. But because we're coming to a generation that was raised on and adored things like High School Musical and the television show Glee and all of the other things that came along with that, you're starting to see a larger acceptance of that in modern times where some of this theatrical stuff, which at one time would be considered straight pop, is now being presented in an alternative way. And I think it was happening in a, a different form back at this time. Uh, I think there was, um, you know, uh, the Fine Young Cannibals are a great example of a song that was probably not intended to be a pop song, but was so catchy, so well-written, followed that pop formula that it was such a monster that it became a pop hit. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of those crossovers too throughout this podcast of uh, songs that were big in pop and an alternative. And we do see that still to this very day. And when you go back and you listen to those 80s weekends uh, on the quote-unquote pop stations, it's mostly alternative music. And you have to mm -hmm. remember at that time, like when you're talking 1983, 1984, when Cyndi Lauper came out, she was charting on the alternative chart because she was considered an alternative artist. But when you think of Cyndi Lauper, you think of her as this female pop icon, sort of in uh, a direct line to similar artists such as Madonna. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, is Madonna was trying to be a pop act. Cyndi Lauper started as uh, sort of an underground punk-inspired pop act. Now, I want to circle back to this grunge, I guess you could say beginnings of grunge that I'm starting to hear. Now, again, I wasn't born until 1990, and I didn't really start listening to music until my later years, and I discovered alternative music with U2 when I was a teenager. So part of this podcast is me learning a lot of this stuff that I've never heard before. So bands like Sonic Youth, I had never listened to, but they had a song in 1988 called Teenage Riot, which I really liked. And I felt like that was also part of this evolution into grunge. Another song that I really loved was by the church called Under the Milky Way. That one to me felt very grungy. And then also, obviously, this one, I'm sure you're going to talk about Dixon, Jane's Addiction, Jane Says, which I hear all the time on 95X. It's a song that we play, I believe, in our regular rotation. Um, and that is a song that I think you would clearly define as grunge. Is that right? Um, I don't think Nothing Shocking really falls into the grunge category. I think Nothing Shocking is uh, a prime example of what helped break that L.A. alternative rock scene or that sort of Central California rock scene that also included the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Faith No More, uh, Fishbone, 
24-7 Spies, a whole host of others, including uh, a band that we'll talk about uh, a little bit later here uh, down the road, uh, a band that I absolutely adore, uh, grew up on, and consider to be one of the most influential bands for an entire generation, a band called Living Color. Uh, the first all-black alt-metal band, I guess, for lack of uh, a way to put it. But at this time in the late 80s, uh, things that were more akin to this were considered alternative. I mean, the early days of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, they were a funk-punk band. You think back to their cover of Higher Ground and the ferocity of that, and we'll dive into that with the next podcast because Mother's Milk came out in 1989. But I think uh, with with all of your examples, except for Jane's Addiction, you're definitely gearing up towards uh, that Seattle sound, which Sonic Youth is also um, very present in that Seattle lineage, um, having been just uh, hugely influenced uh, of guys like Mark Arm, who formed Mud Honey and had an early band called Green River with Jeff Ament from Pearl Jam. I mean, that Seattle scene was very much inspired by uh, the music of Sonic Youth and a lot of the other things of the time whether it was Fugazi or some of the stuff that Steve Albini was doing in the Midwest, like it, it all sort of led to uh, big loud guitars being used in a way that they hadn't been used in such a bombastic manner since probably the who. And we're obviously going to be talking a lot more about Seattle. So maybe I'm, I'm, I'm hitting some springboards here and, you know, maybe it's just my subconscious really excited to talk about grunge. Cause that's actually a genre that I've kind of, been exposed to for the first time in the last couple of years uh, since like I really only started listening to Pearl Jam within the last couple of years. Uh, but we're going to get to that a lot uh, more later on uh, well, trust in the podcast. Next, next year, in fact, we will get to uh, an album called Apple by Mother Love Bone, uh, which features pretty much all of Pearl Jam minus uh, lead singer Andrew Wood, who died tragically of a heroin overdose. Uh, 1989 was also the year that Louder Than Love by Soundgarden saw the light of day, a very influential record uh, from that city of Seattle. And uh, we're approaching the, uh, the the timeline of the formation of the original Nirvana as well. Hmm. So what else was it from 1988 that really stood out as influential for the year? <clears throat> for me, this is one of my favorite albums of all time. While it was released in late 1987, it, truly became a phenomenon in 1988. The Australian band you know and I love called In Excess. Uh, the album was called Kick. It spawned four top ten singles, New Sensation, Never Tear Us Apart, which by the way, Bishop Briggs, who headlined our very first 95 Xmas Pajama Jam, does one of the greatest covers in the history of recorded music with her version of Never Tear Us Apart. Hands down, <laughs> like one of those just... First time you hear it, if you don't get goosebumps, you're dead inside kind of moments. Uh, my favorite single off the album was definitely Devil Inside, but the one that went to number one and also got them five MTV Video Music Awards was Need You Tonight, which had a part two in the video of Mediate, which was sort of a take on an old Bob Dylan video where all of the lyrics were on cue cards and they threw them away as sort of like a very early edition of what we all know now as a lyric video. Oh, that's so cool. I, I, I'm going to check out uh, a lot of those, that Bishop Briggs cover they use. I love Bishop Briggs. I'll have to check that one out for sure. But the uh, NXS New Sensation was on my favorites list from the year. I love that song. 
Yeah, In Excess was just that that band that had a little bit of everything to them. And I could see why you would like New Sensation because there is a very edge-like guitar riff in that song. Uh, These guys have a a great understanding of what elements of New Wave were still fundamental at this time, brought a a good edge of what we all now, now call alternative rock to the table, but also had this big, open, fun pocket that made you think about funk music while also keeping to the relative simplicity of verse, chorus, verse and creating uh, formulaic pop rock around very interesting tones and arrangements. And when you really break down these NXS songs to what they are at their core, it's kind of baffling to, to, to revel in the simplicity of the instrumentation and just understand that they, they were masters far beyond their time. And in my opinion, without bands like NXS, a lot of the things that happened throughout the 90s and even all the way up until today, like artists like Suburban wouldn't necessarily have had a palette to draw from to create their art if NXS hadn't come along first with the stark nature of, of being able to, to just sort of convey what it is they were doing. I mean, a lot of times, this was, this was the first big rock act that used artificial drums. Hmm. You know, like, it, like the, the dude stood up and played drum pads. That wasn't really a big rock and roll thing in the late 80s. You know what I mean? But when you think about today's modern alternative music, there's a lot of synthetic drum sounds and 808s and trap beats and all of these things that I think trace back uh, pretty, I mean, in a roundabout way to this era where new wave sort of collided with alternative rock and took on a little bit of a funk edge. And there are times listening to In Excess where I almost feel like there's this weird juxtaposition between Jim Morrison and Prince. And it's just like this, this magical thing that happens for me with these guys and most specifically with this record because there's very little outside of this record and their previous album, Listen Like Thieves, that I really care for. Like X was good and Suicide Blonde was a good tune, but this was just one of those, for me, perfect albums uh, for not only the the time period, but presenting itself in such a timeless manner. When you hear songs off of this album today, uh, like Devil Inside, man, minus the production value, could be something from a band like She Wants Revenge or A Hundred Gex or, you know, any of the other bands that are making like this sort of, post-rock meets new wave thing that's happening in the world of alternative music. Alternative bands finding new ways to get their sound across is definitely no stranger to this genre. And you're just talking about that with NXS using like synth pads and, um, you know, alternative, alternative, pardon the pun, uh, instruments to get their sound out. I mean, you see it today with alternative acts that are actually DJs like Rez and Grabbits. Uh, who are actual yeah. DJs and they're considered alternative musicians too. Absolutely. Um, it's one of those things where like you don't realize when something is current, how far ahead of the curve it is. And, it, and it's, it's fun for me to do this podcast with you because it takes me back. And in a lot of ways, like uh, I've, I've taken huge breaks from a lot of these records and I haven't thought about these songs in a while. And it's great to use them as sort of like, you know, my version of the DeLorean to go back and relive those moments. 
um, and sort of put myself back into that headspace of the time period. And this was a, a glorious time period. I mean, I was a huge James Addiction fan. I absolutely adored Nothing Shocking. So many great tunes on that. I mean, and I'll be the first one to admit, like Jane says, it's probably one of my least favorite tunes. Uh, and I think that's just because of um, how much it's been played, how like when I was your age, every douchebag at a party that had an acoustic guitar, that was the song they would play. Like, I know it's like some John Mayer thing now, but like, back then, because it's, it's a couple of, you know, it's just a couple of chords. It's easy. It's strummable. Uh, but it was really like songs like Had a Dad and especially Mountain Song, Pigs in Zen, Summertime Rolls. Like it was it was a different kind of California viewpoint. It was this, it, it was very much LA, but it was LA as viewed through, you know, the eyes of an artist from San Francisco. It, it was really just like, for the time period, very forward thinking. Um, it was artistic in a way that a lot of stuff that like the Chili Peppers wasn't. And not to say that, because I have a Red Hot Chili Peppers tattoo on my leg. I love the band. But there, there was a frenetic energy and uh, an anti-authority vibe with the Chili Peppers. They were a party band where Jane's was more of the art rock band. You know what I mean? Like uh, you would, you know, it, it wouldn't be out of place at times for Jane's Addiction to have like belly dancers on stage. There were uh, certain stops on the Lollapalooza tour where they would have painters on stage painting these giant murals in live time along with the band. Uh, there was always, you know, uh, Perry Farrell in his his choice of attire. And it, Dave Navarro with his shirtless androgyny and, it was just, it was just, it, it was very cool because there were so many different elements to Jane's addiction, you know, like the, the spooky girls all love Dave and all of the, the artists and uh, the eccentrics loved Perry and Perry was also very pro human rights and pro uh, at the time it was just, it was gay rights, it, you know, which we all now uh, refer to as LGBTQ and I think there's a plus on the end of it now. Um, not making light of it, it's just ever-evolving. You know, but Perry Farrell was also the dude that put together Lollapalooza. Like, that was his, his brainchild. He put that together and put that, really, that, that model of this, the touring summer festival in place for everybody to model after. And uh, this album is just something I remember very affectionately as, like... Uh, I don't know, like a, like almost like a cathartic thing. Like I, cause I was, I was, you know, not to get super wicked, strange and personal on this, but I was emancipated at the age of 15. So like I was living on my own in my band's practice space at this time. Uh, no bathroom or, I mean, there was a bathroom, but it was like a community bathroom. So there's no showers, just a sink and a toilet. So like, you know, after, you know, going to high school all day and getting off the bus two miles away, you know, trying to bum a shower at a friend's house or like just, you know, figuring out what you're going to do with the rest of your day. You know, you end up with your little Sony cassette Walkman in your one room with one light bulb hanging from the ceiling space that you live in. Uh, a record like this hits you in a different way. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's just, this was a very personal record for me uh, just because it was so honest and it was so different from, 
uh, things that had been done before. And there was uh, an ethnicity to it that was almost ambiguous between uh, some of the, the, the Latin stylings of it, but there's also some very distinctly Middle Eastern beats and vibes with Dave's guitar. And, you know, it, it, it's definitely very interesting. And while you can point to, you know, as many little things like Zeppelin, you can also point to a bunch of little things that you could get out of like one of the cool New Orleans bands, like the Funky Meters. It was just, it was a, a great encapsulation of the time period of L.A., and uh, Jane's Addiction, to me, was like the first big, important rock band of this movement kind of taking up after R.E.M. in that sort of grassroots world where it was more word of mouth and friend of friend. and Oh, my God, you've got to check this out. Oh, I, I copied this tape for you kind of thing. Like, I think that Jane's Addiction was that 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 new version of R.E.M., except instead of Southern Roots, it was weird California artsy vibes. Hmm. Wow, Dixon. I, honestly, I don't think I've ever heard you talk so quite so passionately and uh, with such a connection uh, to music as you did just now with Jane's Addiction. Um, you know, we, we, we've been talking about it a lot, about how music kind of uh, shapes your life. Um, and how certain albums can shape your life and your experiences. I know I went through that with the Joshua Tree. Um, is this one album that you would put up on, you know, your top five list of all time? Um, from a sentimental standpoint, yes. From a musical masterpieces standpoint, probably not. And, and it's nothing against Jane's. It, it's just... Um, Teenage me thought this was the dopest thing ever. And adult me looks back very fondly on that. Um, and, and there's nothing fundamentally wrong with it. It's just my taste has evolved. And there are things that have come along that have uh, struck me closer to the heart and are probably more timeless for me. Sure. I mean, sure. there's nothing There's nothing wrong with the fact that this was my favorite album in high school for a long time and admitting that it no longer is, it, it wouldn't make my top 10 of yeah. all time. You know what I mean? Because yeah. we all grow. We, we, we evolve. Our music taste evolves. But uh, Jane's Addiction is definitely something that left a, a huge imprint on me and uh, my, my musical formation in my teens. I think that's really cool. I, I appreciate you sharing that because uh, it's, it, it's, I don't know if I've heard your perspective on, uh, on music like that just yet throughout this podcast. It's cool to hear your perspective on it for sure. Um, oh, thanks, man. So I only had a couple more songs that were on my favorites list that I really, really enjoyed from 1988. Um, obviously, uh, the, the one that really stands out to everyone would be R.E.M.'s Orange Crush. Um, that definitely, to me, uh, you know, we've talked about how R.E.M. is a quote-unquote college rock type of band. I'm starting to hear that earlier 90s sound kind of break in. Um, and then, as we talked about before, the NXS uh, New Sensation was one that uh, I also really liked. Absolutely. I've got another sentimental favorite that I'm going to throw in as my last mention this week. And I'm sure it's not going to be in your playlist either. But I've got to talk about a band called Was Not Was and an album called What Up Dog. Uh, they were essentially a band. They, they got together in Detroit, like 1979. It's Dave Weiss, Don Ferguson. Um, and they adopted the stage names of Dave Was and Don Was, these fictional brothers. Uh, and they did 
some very strange things, man. I loved it because like the, the two songs I want to talk about on this record were very impactful for me as a teenager. The first was called Dad, I'm in Jail. And the reason that song resonates so well is because I had no idea it was not was not was. Uh, the only reason I was exposed to the tune was from a movie called Poem of the Volume starring Christian Slater, who was a pirate DJ who put together like a pirate radio station in his parents' basement and went on his like high school's frequency and was like this disruptive force that played like anti-authoritative music and really cool stuff and like, you know, spoke his heart. And like, this was, a, this is like, this was like the, the late eighties, man. Like uh, men weren't supposed to talk about their feelings. And here was like this very like ahead of its time movie that was discussing things like mental health and suicide and it touched a spark for me because I grew up loving radio, which is why I'm still in it. Uh, so that song is so weird and so different and so not a good example of, of what was not was is. It's a super dissonant electronic sampled song. Uh, it's very punk rock in nature. And uh, that movie inspired a, a huge part of my life and I remember it very fondly. The other memory I have of being 15 years old and was not was, was that they had this goofy ass song called Walk the Dinosaur. Why does like, that sound so familiar? You would know it if you heard it, man. Like it was I feel like, like the, I have. It was like the tones and I of 1988, man. Like open the door, get on the floor, everybody do the dinosaur. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think yeah. I think I know so, that. Yeah, so it, it's definitely, it had to have been in some kids' stuff by now. But like, and this is probably way too personal. And if you need to cut this out, feel free. But uh, I was 15 and lost my virginity to that song and not on purpose. And it's stuck with me ever since. And that's why like Was Not Was is, is such a big part of like my age 15, 16, between that experience and then Pump Up the Volume coming out. So like... Uh, was not was go check it out it's definitely like if you like prince and you don't hate frank zappa go check it out like if i could equate it to a modern artist i would say it is kind of like speaker box by outcast if you can if you can if you can dig that this is a very early version of that okay okay well i mean the theme of this episode i think has been how music has influenced us and shaped us. And I can't think of a better, more defining moment in a young man's life. <laughs> yeah, true enough. True enough. <laughs> and I'm being a gentleman. I'm just, I'm just saying that the event happened. I'm not naming I, I mean, it happens. It does. It happens. You know, it's, yeah. it, and, and it's a very defining moment in one's life. And why not do it to music? You know, in the radio was on and unfortunately walk the dinosaur came on as Things started to progress, and it, it made a lasting impression on me. So uh, sometimes that's, that's all it takes. That, yeah, yeah. We <laughs> we all have these weird triggers, and that's what that one triggers for me. But yeah, 1988 <laughs> was a dope year. Uh, 1989 is going to be huge. There's some great stuff coming, and uh, we are careening towards the 1990s. Now we should talk about something quick because we're gonna we're gonna do uh, each decade is a season, so that we can go back take a listen to these, figure out what it is that we'd like to improve because the 90s are, in my opinion, probably the most important decade that we're going to do in this podcast because they were my formative years and when I first got into the industry. And 
uh, there's going to be a lot of firsthand knowledge that I can pass along in this. And I also know that you being a 90s baby were very influenced by a lot of these acts that we're going to be talking about. Uh, so we, we are going to do a season finale coming up after 1989. We're going to take a little bit of a break. And then we'll come back and present the 90s to you in full 10 consecutive weeks. And we'll even do a recap of the decade for you on that one as well. Yeah, and I think we've got a few bonus episodes in there too that we're going to be doing. Oh, yeah. We're going to do uh, a one specific to Nirvana. We're going to do one that encompasses the Seattle scene. Uh, there's going to be one about Radiohead in there. Hell, there might be 10 bonus episodes. <laughs> There's going to be a lot coming, including one I'm excited about on the Goo Goo Dolls, which I do have to mention. We didn't mention it last year in 1987, but their very first uh, self-titled album was released in 1987. And they that's when they were like full-on punk. And I'm really excited to get into that and talk about it as well. That was definitely their New York Dolls-inspired era. And uh, during those years, they played right here at the good old Lost Horizon. So many bands have come through the Lost Horizon here in Syracuse. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. That just being in that building, as run down and classic as that building is, you can feel the energy in that place of all the And you the can still acts. smell Axel Rose's <laughs> sweat. <laughs> Before we close out, I do just need to give one honorable mention to the U2 single, Desire, which also came out this year on their album Rattle and Hum, which was released in October of 88. Again, I only mention this because I'm a huge fan of U2, if you haven't figured that out about me by now. Um, one thing I learned that I, when I was looking it up, I had no idea. They had a documentary mm -hmm. based on the album, and I never knew that existed, so I'm definitely going to be checking that out. This oh, album... Oh, you'll dig that. Oh, I can't wait to check it out. And uh, you know, basically, this album was Bono's continued love fest with America, which we had established was the beginnings of that in the Joshua Tree in the last episode. So, well, um, I told you guys during that bonus episode, Rattle and Hum is by far and away my number one U2 album of all time. Like, it doesn't even have like, there's not even a, a close runner up. And didn't like, you say it, it was Angel of Harlem was your favorite song? Angel of Harlem is what did it for me, man. It really did, like. Uh, the, the fact that this weird Irish countryman, uh, who, in, in my opinion, at times is not the best singer, uh, fully embodied American soul in a way that was so compelling to me and so real that like it made me want to dive into more. And then that album was just, in my opinion, their greatest work. It was unpretentious. It wasn't overthought. It wasn't overproduced. It was an honest moment in time with the band that I wish they had more time to explore. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can totally see that. And it, it definitely was a great album. Um, and just great work, what they built upon from the Joshua tree and angel of Harlem is definitely one of my favorite songs. Now that I've gotten to know you a lot more through this podcast, Dixon, like, I can totally understand why you love that song so much. I think that's going to do it for 1988. Man, we covered a lot of ground in this year. So many great songs, and uh, we are just paving the way now to the final year of the 80s. So next week, we'll check out 1989, and as Dixon mentioned, we'll be wrapping it all up with a nice big bow tie with our season finale coming up two weeks from now. Um, then we're going to take a little bit of a break and come back with the 90s, but we'll have a lot more information to come on that in the coming weeks. Dixon, anything else for you to add, my friend? Uh, just that I hope I didn't scar anybody with too much personal information this week. 
<laughs> well, now I know when I listen to that song, I'm always going to be thinking of what you said today. So uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. When we're not recording, I'll actually give you a mental image to have forever. I, all right. I think I'm going to end this call pretty quickly on, with that said. <laughs> uh. Well, this has been the year 1988. Check out our show notes, 95x.com slash Roots of Alternative. And we'll talk to you next time on the Roots of Alternative podcast for 95x. Bye.